Variety, where writers write, actors read, audience loves, <laughs> listens, and everybody woos. <laughs> Wins. It is Valentine's night, and love is in the air. The water, and apparently the beer. Our loved up theme is mate and date. We have paired five handsome stories with five gorgeous actors, and fireworks are bound to ensue. So please, not before I've reached the safety of the fire exit. As while Phoenix may well rise from the old flames, I'm not quite sure about my own chances in a romantically charged super inferno. And to keep the mood as romantic as possible, please turn your phones off. Normally, I'd say to silent, but we don't want any casual swiping right, do we? <laughs> we'll have three stories for you in the first half, then a chance to discuss compatibility factors and second date availability, or maybe just to swap partners, before the <laughs> infamous Lively book quiz. <laughs> And two final tales. So, whether you are a Romeo to someone's Juliet, or just a Theresa May to someone's Donald Trump, <laughs> sit back and enjoy as we begin our first tale, which will be Flat-Packed Love by John Vicious, read by Grace Cookie Gang. John Vicious is a member of the eponymous Vicious Collective, a London-based troupe of interdisciplinary artists interested in exposing and commenting on the inherent ironies and contradictions at the heart of contemporary Britain. He is banned from 14 online bookmakers. I wasn't sure if that was the people who make books or gambling bookmakers. Uh, John Vicious is not a real name. Grace trained at City Lit. Recent credits include Tyrant in Season 3 and Melissa in Light. Grace is also a singer, a Radio 4 addict, and was a BBC Radio Drama Norman Beaton Fellowship semi-finalist in 2015. Grace! So, where do we start? He claps his hands together excitedly and posts a wide grin in my direction, appropriating all the space in the room. With the instructions, I motion to the pamphlet on the floor, which was expelled from the packaging when he decided to rip it open. Upon it is an illustration of a metal-framed bed, perfectly constructed, symmetrical, resolved. Above the picture, S-O-M-N is printed in austere capital letters. Son? I don't know how you pronounce it. He leaps across the wood and metal bars strewn asunder on the floor. As I said, his doing. And falls to his knees to inspect the booklet. Why is he on my floor? I wondered to myself. 
Two other people offered to help me, and I selected him. And now he is poring over this instruction pamphlet in earnest, scratching his stubbled chin side to side like a grotesque caricature. The last time we were together, I had procrastinated the day away in his bed, crying, lying hysterically for near enough five hours, whilst he paced up and down, shouting obscenities, throwing the casual fuck's sake bitch in my face, amidst a flurry of other insults and put-downs. Then he would sit at the foot of the bed, head in hands for a while, and we would make up and have a heartfelt chat and fuck with all the heart ripped out, then devolve like then, then devolve like a knee-jerk reaction to the beginning of the process, picking up the argument wherever it was we left off. Three quarters of the way into this marathon, and I wasn't even really arguing any longer, simply prolonging the cycle, seeing if he'd continue to rise to the bait, react like a Pavlovian cur rampaging around, tearing at his hair and cursing to the skies with absolute angst. It was like clockwork, how his behaviour went from lassitude to lust, to loathing, and then back again. And it was fun to push it. It was fun to watch. Men are so stupid sometimes. We broke up soon after that. And now he is sitting on my floor, inspecting these instructions. I hate these things, he says. I mean, what angle and direction is that meant to be going in? He prods a finger at the diagrammatical arrow on the page. A little cartoon man, composed of perfect edges, smiles back at him, a better engineer than he. He's easily perturbed when he doesn't understand. It's not like we live in this 2D flat world. How are you meant to understand this? I saunter over to him, because I also want to see the instructions, try and grasp those abstract planes to which the diagrams allude. And he's right for once. The arrows are ambiguous, and their direction is all a bit skewed and squashed on the cheap recycled paper. He rushes through the pages, annoyed, expecting some sort of Euclidean elucidation to fall upon him, trying at odds to get his mind around the end product that the front cover so perfectly envisages. And then I remember why I chose him. After much fraught thought of how and where to begin, we start with the base. Four metal barriers which create a large rectangle sitting on my wooden floor. We bicker and bark at one another, laying them out. He grabs each one forcefully and motions the wrong way round. I assure him that he's not following the instructions. So he checks the pamphlet, sees that my method is correct, and then silently complies. Lift it up, I say, which he interprets as pull it away from me, so it falls onto the floor with a reverberating clang. It is excruciatingly annoying, a mistake I only have time for once, although I suffer it again and again. But eventually, the frame is in place and stands in the dead centre of my bedroom. I guess it's starting to look like the picture. He glances from the built frame to the booklet 
back to the fray. I don't imagine he was a precocious child. <laughs> Shouldn't be that difficult to do the rest. Put it to good use. I can hear him smiling at me through his commentary while I work on securing the legs to the frame. And it is a smile that sounds like expectation, reward and conquest, especially coming from him. It's also a smile that reminds me of all the snide asides and metered little remarks he would level me with in the past when goading me in front of his friends or colleagues, trying to get a rise out of my discomfort. It is a loud smile that scalds my ears, so loud that although the room is still and silent, I consciously clatter the Allen key against the metal, sending a shudder around the frame he's standing in. He stays there, watching me work, proud about his lack of involvement compared to overall achievement. A decent metaphor for his part in our relationship, I guess. I unroll the wooden slats onto the frame, clunking locomotion. He whips out his phone and punches in a silent text, glued to the screen, with his face wreathed in a wry smile. No doubt, another unsuspecting girl stuck between his robust good looks and alluring charm. I think back ever so briefly to my infatuation with him and his artillery of coy smiles and jokes and relentless nuanced compliments and affectations. Was it a malfunction of mine to be so gullible, so easily ensnared? Quite possibly. The beginning of our romance, as with all good romances, was a whirlwind, no doubt. But winds that strong always leave destruction in their wake. I have become immune to his charm offensive. Not long now. We place the headboard into the allotted slot with relative ease. The mattress, though, he throws that onto the bed with a rugged and rapid disregard which annoys me. I tell him it's the wrong way round. There isn't a wrong way round. What are you talking about? It's a mattress. He's right, I guess. So I let him have this final small victory. And with the expository assurance of a talking head from a daytime TV advert for accident claims, he says, besides, you have a bed. It even looks like the picture. He's dressed in that categorical grin again, positively beaming at me. I smile falsely in return. Downstairs, concocting some celebratory refreshments, I wonder whether to go through with it. Why do it? A throwback, perhaps? A final chance for one-upmanship? Our relationship perfectly, utterly summarised and compartmentalised to a defining waste. Yes, that's it. I feel slightly better as I drop in the powder and listen to the effervescent white noise from his glass. Back upstairs, I find him predictably unfolded on the bed, waiting for my return. Furtively, I sit down next to him, feeling his eyes dissecting the nape of my neck, running down my back, over my arm, handing him his drink. Finally, 
My eyes turned towards his, knowingly, suggestively. We clink glasses and smile. It is ever so pleasant, drinks in hand, sun streaming through the netted curtains. I glance at him with giddiness. He leans towards me, perched on one elbow to kiss me. But I beckon him to drink more, drink more. I place my glass down on the wooden floor and impatiently take his, almost empty, from his hand. He gazes at me with a longing intensity, squinting slightly in the bright daylight of the room. I spring up and pin his arms down by the wrists. He tries to resist, but he's only pretending. He always liked to be governed. I hoist my leg over his frame, straddling him, steadfast, back straight. He still gazes up at me, and for an instant, as I place my hands around his head, I feel slight pangs of uncertainty. Because even though he is consigned to my desire, the sex was always good, and I kind of desire that as much as my antipathy wants to be sated. Still, too late now. I lean down, close my eyes, and kiss him with pursed lips. One long, final, deep, dark kiss. He responds, trying to move his arms, but they are pinned down, complacent, accepting, defeated. A moment passes, and as I come up and inspect his handsome face, his eyes roll backward in ecstasy, and his mouth falls open slowly with a soporific sigh. I put my ear to his chest, hear his heartbeat fluttering, falling, disintegrating, and sit up, pulling his eyelids down with my index and ring finger. Now the work begins. I take his left arm, a heavy and unflinching dead weight, and pull it carefully across his chest and down his side. I arrange his hand, neatly wrapping his torso. Next, his right arm, doing the same, and placing it over the other. He looks like a mummy. His arms flop down a bit, but I fuss over them until they remain in place. After all, this needs to be done precisely. I climb on top of him again, holding his torso between my legs, admire the serene reverie and angelic calm on his face, before clasping his head firmly beneath my, between my hands and turning some 195 degrees to the right. I have to force it, but eventually everything sort of clicks into place. I spring up confused by the energy of the liquor has afforded me, and continue. I turn him onto his chest, and then the hardest part, a sort of Marinelli bend. I don't have an instruction manual to work from, and can't quite remember the technique. It, it doesn't want to fall back, you see, but with a little force, I manage to push with all my weight against the legs until the muscle, vertebrae, and sinuous fibre give with a mellifluous rip, a few snap, crackle, and pops, and everything folds neatly on top of the torso. 
a slight flourish here, a quick rearrangement there, a deft origamic flattening follows. Soon enough, I am getting somewhere. It starts to fold easily, no longer really resembling itself. More a Dharma Polaroid, a Corova milkmaiden. I must be doing it right. Before long, the strange limbic contortion of concave and convex couplings, this organic objet d'art, begins to flatten as I push and stretch it out with my strength. I inspect every fold and surface and stand up from the bed to admire my work. Whatever he was is now a perfectly smooth plane, a tabula rasa, a malleable plank of sorts lying square on my bed. With slight difficulty, I slide the heavy, hardy mass from the mattress back into the cardboard that the box the bed came in. <laughs> it just about fits. I close it up and stand back to revel in my own success, my own spatial awareness. As I drag the box, plank inside, down the stairs, listening to the clockwork thud of it, falling on every step. A memory of waiting for him in the rain falls on my mind and I smile. The forecast is set for showers this evening and the bin men aren't due until Wednesday. I take it down the path and place it on the pavement against the wrought iron fence, dusting off my hands while surveying the silent suburban street. And then, beaming, I go back inside and race up the stairs, two at a time. I jump on my new bed and lie flat out. Thank you, Brett. Our second story of the evening is Our Winter Tryst by Kim French, reread by Tony Bell. Kim is a movement practitioner and writer who originally trained in dance and physical theatre. She won the Autumn 2016 TSS Flash Fiction Contest and has been shortlisted for the Flash 500, TSS Short Fiction, Los Gatos Listovel Short Story Prize, Dueling Poetry Competition, Allingham Poetry Competition, and the Bedford International Poetry Prize. Evening Standard Award nominee for A Man for All Seasons, Tony has performed all over the world from a, with award-winning all-male Shakespeare company, Propellant, playing Bottom, Beste, Ortilicus, and Tyrannia. TV includes Coronation Street, Holby City, Midsummer's Murders, EastEnders, and The Bell. He's also a radio and voiceover artist. Tony! Thank you. Our Winter Tryst by Kim French. I've always wanted a winter date, you say. You turn to catch me looking at you. A winter date? To stave off the winter blues, you say. Sounds great. Let's try it, I say. Five days of every year from January the 15th to the 20th. It's not my place to question. 
Where did we go first? The big house at the crooked boot. The crooked house at the big boot. Prague. Prague. The house is full of his old furniture. He fortifies us with plum brandy and sends us out into the snow to eat sparrow at a local restaurant. Only a country so cold in winter would serve a dish so rich and a fire water so potent. On Charles's bridge, you stand transfixed by the man with white stubble, wearing knitted fingerless gloves, who slips his fingers into a small metal box of heated water, then moves them fluidly over the rims of crystal wine glasses filled to various levels and arranged by pitch. Feu Elise resonates in the cold air. You breathe out as I breathe in. It is minus one. In the marionette museum, you say, I could clone you. Marionettes, Inc. It's been done before. Everything's been done before. Everything. Budapest. Peggy and Beckett spent four days in bed. And what did they do for sustenance, I ask? Stimulating conversation and room service. <laughs> it's not my place to argue. On the fifth day, we pass a violinist playing Mozart on Sechenyi Bridge. It's minus two. You follow a sign that says live music. And we descend stone steps into a family living room where they are as surprised to see us as we are them. <laughs> they serve us their dinner, call their friends, send their son to fetch the violinist from the bridge who serenades us in the warm apartment as we eat chicken nuggets and peas. <laughs> their friends arrive with a bottle of wine and convince us without a word of English that we are the most beautiful couple uh, and this is the most perfect evening until we're happy to part with 25 euros for a CD that doesn't work. <laughs> then we go to Sechenyi Baths. Steam rises against the indigo air. A woman wears a pink shower cap with feathers. Old men play chess. Marble lions spout fountains, volcanic, as we tumble from hot to hotter to less hot to natural jacuzzi, effervescent. We fall into bed, lovers at the Arts Hotel, where others come to do business, and we are smiled at conspiratorially, whispered about, envied, and off-season. <laughs> We've never spent a Christmas together, so you won't have to meet my disastrous but beautiful family. We've only our winter dates, which I get to choose and book. Then I forward the details to you. It is you who set the rules. Copenhagen. On the fifth day, we attend an open mic poetry gig in Danish. <laughs> Thinking we're going to a jazz gig, we arrive early, ascend a long flight of steps, sit on the plastic chairs at the centre near the front. The room fills up quickly. Some of it is clearly very humorous because to the left and the right, front and back, there are waves of laughter. 
I'm ready to make for the door, but you don't move. You listen to the rise and fall of syllables. What if someone finds out we don't speak Danish? <laughs> so what's the worst can happen? They kick us out. Afterwards, you ask the man in the jazz shop to recommend something. The room fills with music. He speaks perfect English. Everyone in Denmark speaks perfect English. It snows. Next year, we're going somewhere hot. Luang Prabang. Even getting here takes monumental effort. Visas, passports, border control, American dollars, more American dollars. But this heritage town is a joy. All temples and monuments and no cars. It's peaceful and it's hot. When the saffron-robed monks pass by at 5am, you're ready for them. Having given every last cent we have to the canny women who sell rice balls wrapped in leaves at extortionate prices to guileless tourists like us, we give all our food to these well-fed monks with their bells and their ceremony, and we eat nothing ourselves for breakfast until the bank opens at ten, by which time we've been going round and round the food market for five hours in circles of deteriorating temper, just like we did in that kayak we rented yesterday. It is a long wait for that cup of thick coffee with condensed milk, and low blood sugar suits neither of us well. I crave our bed on these long, hot days, but we visit temples from dawn till dusk, then take a night bus to Vientiane. A man with a gun sits on the roof while crates are unloaded in the middle of the night. We eco-trek. Leeches grow fat on our blood. London. <laughs> I need you. You need me. I hesitate, phone in hand. It is June and it is 3 a.m. You don't know about my child. You never asked. Just as my wife has never asked about our winter conferences. Next year, I've booked for St. Petersburg. I whisper and disconnect. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Our final story of the first half will be The Golden Knot by Alan Graham, be read by Louisa Gunn. Alan studied creative writing and economics at UEA and is still unsure which discipline relies on make-believe the most. Louisa is a Liars League regular. Her recent voiceover work includes The Vine in 1914 Strand on BBC Radio 2, Seducing Harry Enfield on the radio ad, Guiding Visitors around Stockholm's Moderna Musée, and Giving Instructions inside an MRI scanner. <laughs> Louisa! 
The Golden Knot by Alan Graham. Heart racing. I get up from the cluttered restaurant table and quickly yet calmly walk over to the till. I smile awkwardly at the head waiter and ask to pay half the bill for table 12. Then I'm struck by the sudden thought that this isn't my best strategy here and so I abruptly amend my request. The whole bill, <laughs> I blurt out. Please, can I pay for what we both ordered? Before you get too carried away into thinking that my motives here are charitable, I should probably confess that I'm not being entirely selfless in wanting to pay the whole bill. Office gossip, that's what I'm worried about. How the all-entangling network of whisperers will react on Monday when it learns of my actions. It would get around the place pretty fast that I had waited until the moment that Gordon from accounts had disappeared to the loo before abandoning our date. To the sensible folk in the office, I feel I can easily justify my actions. I mean, the date has been terrible. <laughs> and none of the catastrophe can be remotely considered to be my fault. For starters, I made the effort and I look amazing. Classy, like the restaurant, and, and sexy, like the Saturday night. Plus, had I been allowed to get much of a word in, my conversation would have been sparkling. <laughs> so I can see exactly how I am going to play this when describing events to the office. I will focus on the facts. That Gordon from accounts arrived 15 minutes late and made it obvious that he felt he owed me no apology or explanation for this. Indeed, it was too obvious. His silence felt too rehearsed. This was the performance of a man who'd been told by a book that the best strategy was to play confident, to make your date for the evening feel grateful that you'd arrived at all. I could focus on the fact that Gordon from Accounts was the sort of guy who believed entirely in a certain sort of book. One where all he had to do was to follow its teachings and in doing so, he could be transformed into sexy Gordon, the alpha male player who only just happens to be working in a camp. With a polite grin, I've just sat through 90 minutes of sexy Gordon going through every single contrived conversational trick that the book evangelises. For the purposes of not being the villain on this failed date, I think that's an acceptable amount of politeness on my part. And it's the full player's gospel. The compliments with just enough backhandedness. The insincere attempts at funny self-deprecation. The hints that his approval might just be the confidence boost that I'm looking for. Stick to accurately recounting what Gordon from Accounts has actually said tonight, and I think most good folk will think I deserve to keep my unblemished office reputation. Of course, there will be others in the office who will hear all this and will still think that I should not have fled the, off the restaurant unannounced. I probably can't spin this so that they'll actually side with me on this, but I'm not going to give them too much ammunition to paint me as the worst sort of dating villain. If 
I pay for the whole thing. I'm thinking, it's going to create a tiny counterweight of decency to all their snide remarks. And I can hear the more vicious types already. That bitch. She just walked out leaving that dear little lamb Gordon from a couch sobbing in the loo. They'll hiss the first gathering round the water fountain, but then one of the more reasonable office bastards will be compelled by decency to add that, well, although she did pay for all of it, including his meal and all that expensive wine, I mean, that was on her too. The adrenaline is flowing now. And I know I need to get this bill paid quickly. With all that extra energy racing through my brain, I can't stop thinking about all these possible conversations. And, and then like a mental jolt, there's, there's another reason why I'm paying for the whole meal. Guilt. <laughs> the nagging sensation that, that it was me who didn't come out tonight for entirely respectable and honest reasons. You see, the thing is, I knew the moment that I agreed to come out on a date that Gordon from Accounts was, well, he's the sort of guy convinced that he's a player, a person inclined to try out all the moves that he's learned in his precious book. There's a select few of us in the office who already know all about it, and an elite cadre within that select few were able to tell me about his less well-known nickname. There's a few hushed whispers where he's not called Gordon from Accounts, but Tripod Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> and upon hearing this moniker, I decided that maybe why the hell not? I could put up with an evening a man's tedious ban banter if it was true that he was endowed like a well-blessed donkey. And if anyone were to challenge me on my reasoning here, I would point out that I've been having a dreadful time recently on pretty much every front. I could make a strong justification that I deserved a casual night of passion with a sexual Goliath. <laughs> that was the plan. My selfish reason for flirting with the guy in the office and then saying yes when he asked me out. But it was when I'd been standing awkwardly in the restaurant waiting for his late arrival that I had my first niggle of doubt. If I saw this through to the end, well, imagine what Gordon from Accounts would brag about to the whole of Accounts on first thing Monday morning. How might the few genuinely cool folk in the office look at me? Look at me as if they were, if they were to hear that I jumped into bed with someone using the cheesiest of the pick-up routines. When my reputation was being considered by all in the office, its status would be all entangled with talk of Gordon from Accounts. Yes, I know, they would say. That Gordon. <laughs> so over dinner, I did try and stay focused on the mission. I kept reminding myself why I was doing this. <laughs> Exclusively thinking about the one aspect of Gordon from Accounts that had brought me here. Just think about getting through all this and arriving at that part of the evening that is going to be pure animal passion. Well, I can for once get to experience the sort of thing that I read about in tawdry, yet effective erotica. <laughs> but as my date ploughed on through his cheap stratagems, all I could think about was the extent to which I really didn't fancy this person at all. The cons on this deal began to outweigh the one single pro, and I resolved to abort the whole operation. I mean, 
agreeing to this date was my mistake. Paying for his meal would be a way for me to make up to Gordon from accounts. Compensation for the fact that he had to come out tonight while I'd learned this lesson. So as I try and convince myself at just how right my behaviour is, I could do without the judgmental looks from the head waiter as he makes a rather dramatic play of adding up the bill. He noticeably stares over my shoulder at our full table. I try and smile apologetically, adding a nervous chuckle that I hope says, <laughs> having to leave this is just one of those things you've probably seen it dozens of times before. The furrow of his frown deepens, as if to reply, May we, madame? I do see women do this all the time. And with such behaviour the most despicable, I despise each and every one of you all. I hand in my card in a manner that I hope conveys the statement, Well, if that's your attitude, monsieur, I will be glad to be shut of this place as quickly as possible. He mumbles something about machine not working and disappears to find another. Okay, now I am getting worried. I glance at the door to the gent's toilet for the umpteenth time and this is not a good time for him to emerge. If he returns to the table now, there is no way that I can credibly deny that I'm leaving. Maybe if I see the door move, I should just leg it. Bill unpaid. How will that be seen in the office on Monday morning? Then, a voice seems to break through the restaurant hubbub. I shouldn't worry about him coming back anytime soon, love. <laughs> I pause and I look around me. There's no one that seems to be talking to me. Or maybe, maybe I've just heard a completely unrelated conversation. Thing is, he's on his phone in there, see? Started playing some stupid daft game of his. I still can't see anyone talking to me. Hello? I begin, fearing I must look like a mad woman to anyone watching. When he's playing on that bloody phone, he's dead to the world. How do you think I managed to give him the slip? hesitate for a moment. I'm sure that this conversation still relates to me. Um, who have you slipped away from? I ask. Who do you think, darling? Gordon. I got an inkling earlier that you might be about to scarf the first chance you get. Got me thinking, that did. Why don't I try and do likewise? The guy's a proper Charlie when you have to deal with him one-to-one -one like. I laugh. Oh yeah, he's a bit of a dick. There's an awkward pause. And then the voice responds, No need to get personal, love. I'm sorry, I begin it. I just... Who, who are you? There's another pause. And at this, I can hear shuffling noises. And then a, a slightly muffled voice continues, Sorry, darling. Just putting into place the final piece of my dead clever escape plan. What did you just ask me? I've stopped caring how mad I look at this point. <laughs> and I repeat my question loudly this time. 
few nearby diners, they look up at the strange woman at the bar, asking nobody in particular who they are. Shh! Call blimey, keep it down, love, the voice answers. I thought you knew. I got a sense earlier that, you know, maybe we'd made a connection. And I wasn't going to let Gordon ruin this one. I've been carrying that guy for so flipping long. This isn't making any sense. For Pete's sake, woman, I've just climbed into your bleeding handbag. Tentatively, I peer down. And there, struggling between a, a small packet of tissues and a leather glove is what looks like an enormously impressive penis. <laughs> Sensing that it's been seen, it, it coyly waves a testicle in acknowledgement. <laughs> All right, figured you could smuggle me out of here before Gordon twigs what he's lost. In fact, before anyone has a chance to learn what you're up to. With a sudden start. I realise that the head waiter has returned, bringing with him a working card machine. Hurriedly, I pay for the entire meal, and then calmly, I put my purse away, taking care to uh, not upset my new passenger. Close my handbag. And with that, I, we, make our escape. <laughs> trained at Bristol Old Vic. Since leaving, he's toured Austria with Vienna's English Theatre, performed in All's Well That Ends Well and Anne Boleyn at Shakespeare's Globe, played Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet by Theatre Sotto Voce, understudied at the National Theatre's production of A Small Family Business, and most recently played Ferdinand Antonio in The Tempest at the Southern Playhouse. Nicholas! Max rented a large apartment on the top two floors of a house on Warwick Square. He used to own a car, 
a silver Porsche, which he parked in the space right outside the flat, a space he considered his. When the basement flat had taken to parking there, a battered VW with crisp packets and empty juice cartons scattering the back, he played it cool, bided his time. He could tell they were disorganized, scatty types. They had three kids under four, and who in their right mind does that? <laughs> so he waited until the residence permit in the windscreen had run down, and then reported it to the council, right on the expiry date. It had been towed within the hour. Max bumped into the woman from the basement flat, their 18-month-old on her hip, the baby strapped to her chest, and the three-year-old dangling off her arm just as she emerged up the stairs and discovered the disappearance of her car. Max had empathized, soothed. He'd come up with a, with a suggestion. Maybe, is that the pound? Yes, yes, why not use his phone? He couldn't wait long though, he's, he's got a meeting to run to. As soon as she'd gone, Max jumped in the Porsche and driven it twice around the block before parking it back where it belonged. He didn't own the Porsche anymore. After he'd accrued one too many speeding points, his license had been suspended, and he'd been sent on one of those speed awareness courses. He'd seen the light, he'd sold his Porsche. He lectured anyone and everyone now about the evils of speed. Listen, I never thought I'd say it, but we should all do without cars. And just because you can't control yourself, his sister Margot sighed, you think we should all completely change our lives? You should see what speed does to the human body. On impact, completely crushes it. Well, you don't have to do the school run. Take the bus. Kids love the bus. Max loved buses. Or at least he said he did. He kept meaning to take a bus. <laughs> he'd even downloaded one of those apps that tells you when the next bus will come. But he'd get bored waiting for it to load and end up hailing a cab. It wasn't his fault. He'd been born impatient. Some people could do things, like waiting for buses, but it turns out it wasn't really him. Max had gone organic and vegetarian. I'm vegetarian, said his online dating profile. But I do make exceptions for fillet steak, <laughs> lobster, <laughs> and sea bass. He hadn't had many hits from vegetarians, <laughs> except for one vegan woman who had wanted to take him on as a project. Max thought being a project might be fun, until he realised what veganism was. The vegan woman made no exceptions. Not for fillet steak, not even for cheese. He changed his profile. I love to cook, instead now. I guess I'm a real foodie at heart. I can't believe how similar we are, said Jess. <laughs> this was date number two, at a gastro pub near the South Bank. This was Max's idea. Near the South Bank, suggested artsy and interesting without actually having to do anything dull and cultural. <laughs> you love food, I love food. You love kids, I love kids. You did. <laughs> Max had two nieces whom he avoided Margot always invited him for dinner at 7pm. Well, then you'll be around for bedtime. The girls would love to see you. Max never arrived at Margot's before 
Ah, oh, so sorry, he'd say, pouring himself a glass of wine. Oh, did I miss bedtime? Did I miss the girls? Oh, oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> That's interesting, he said. It's so interesting, said Jess. Now, I mean, how do you get that from my profile? I mean, the kids, though. Oh, that cute photo, she said. The beautiful blonde baby. I mean, whose is that? So adorable. The hits on Max's online profile had suffered a slump in recent months. He'd taken to looking at the profiles of other men in his age group to see what they were doing that he wasn't. They all had pictures of themselves with kids. I don't on my nieces, they'd say. My best day out, playing dinosaurs with my nephews. <laughs> it was sick, they were all liars. <laughs> if they wanted competition, though, Max knew how to do that. He might not be awash with pictures of himself with the nieces, but he did have a good shot of himself with the baby. It was taken when he'd lent the woman from the basement his phone to call the car down. <laughs> She'd asked him to hold the 18-month-old while she made the call, and then because mothers have a deranged view of how cute their babies look with other people, she'd taken a picture for him on his phone. And this was now his profile picture. <laughs> Jess liked it so much that she came back to Warwick Square and spent the night. This was his first second date conquest in 14 and a half months. And Max felt brilliant. He felt even more brilliant in the morning when Jess cooked him a full English. He was glad he'd taken the precaution of stucking the fridge to burnish his foodie credentials. What's more, she spent the whole time apologising. I know, it's so much worse than anything you do, she said. Max felt he had no choice but to play along. I'd just crisp up the bacon a little more, but otherwise you really cracked it. <laughs> Disaster struck the next day, when Jess appeared at his front door with a buggy. He'd seen her from the window and was going to ignore the intercom. But then the woman from the basement appeared with a blonde child and he felt there was too much at risk for him not to intervene. On the doorstep, Jess was crying. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, so sorry to do this. I know it's only been two dates, she said. But look, I know you're a great guy and I've got a job interview today. My child, mind is sick. I just thought, could you look after Georgie? Her eyes were wide and wet with tears. And Max realised it was a choice, here and now. He either said yes, or it was over with Jess, the non-vegetarian who came back after two dates and cooked a mean English. Or at least next time she would, once she got the bacon right. <laughs> he looked at Georgie and blew a raspberry. Sure. Said Max. Hey, little buddy, do you like dinosaurs? Tyrannosaurus Rex, said George. He's my kind of guy, said Max to Jess. Bless you, said Jess, and kissed him with a passion he'd not been kissed with in a long time. Bye bye, George, be good, she said, and she was gone. Max decided that his neutral carpets and Scandinavian furniture could do without Georgie's touch. Let's go for a walk, eh, Georgie? He said. Georgie looked unmoved. 
He was slumped in the buggy with his fist in his mouth like a drunk. <laughs> Max wasn't at all sure that the gin in the milk thing had died out with the Victorians. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe a bus, he said. Max sat at a bus stop with Georgie in his buggy and browsed the online dating site on his phone. All the new profiles were vegetarians. A bus drew up, unforecast by his app, and the opening of the doors sounded like a swept out. Let's get on, said Max, pushing Georgie through the doors. The doors closed again. On the bus, Georgie screamed, wept, and laughed, doing nothing to dispel the drunk theory. <laughs> Max found a packet of organic rice cakes under the buggy, and they kept him quiet for a while, even though they smelled of horse fodder. <laughs> Fueled by the rice cakes, Georgie made a lunge for Max's phone, making him hit send on an unfinished IM to one of the vegetarians. No, 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 buddy. Grown-up toy, said Max, silencing the phone and cramming it in his back pocket. A woman came and sat next to them with a little girl and read a story. Georgie roared, presumably at the imbecilic plot. <laughs> but Max found it quite relaxing. <laughs> Bus is terminating here, everybody off, said the driver. Max blinked. How far have they come? Uh, where are we? Royal Free Hospital, said the driver. Amstead. Max looked at Georgie, who'd gone all red and puffy. His face was scrunched with some sort of effort, and a stench was rising from him. Oh, God. Oh, God, Georgie, he said. In A&E, the triage nurse was <laughs> most There was nothing actually wrong with him, is there? She said. That depends on how you define wrong, said Max, deploying the winking smile he'd de been developing for the vegetarians. Perhaps the nurse was a vegetarian. She folded her arms and checked her watch. Oh, look at him, said Max. Does he look right to you? Georgie yawned. His red colour had lessened somewhat. This was unfortunate. There's a baby change next to the toilets, said the nurse. And I don't even know why I'm letting you use that. This is a hospital, not a public convenience. <laughs> Max wasn't going to shut himself in a small room on his own with Georgie. He'd never shut himself in a confi confined space with anyone so physically volatile. <laughs> a bus ride was one thing, but this was all going a bit too far. Come on, Georgie, he said. Let's get an Uber. Max was waiting outside Margot's house at 3pm. What the hell have you got there? She said. <laughs> this is Georgie, said Max. He stinks, said niece number one. The nieces were both wearing pink ballet outfits and were smeared with pink all over their faces from some disgusting lollipop they were eating. Seriously, Margot, I, I can't believe you let them eat that crap. What sweeties? cried Georgie, wrestling with the buggy straps. Seriously, Max, I can't believe you haven't changed him. Nancy's right, he really does stink. Can you do it? 
No, Max. Who the hell is he anyway? Hell, 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 chanted Georgie. <laughs> is that your phone? said Margot. Oh, God, said Max. The phone was buzzing ferociously in his pocket. He pulled it out. Nineteen missed calls from Jess. He put the phone to his ear. Jess arrived in a police car, <laughs> which blared its sirens for effect at the corner and then stopped as it pulled up to the curb. She jumped out, grabbed Georgie into her arms. The act was practically the same as mauling in Max's view. He'd been on safari last year and seen lions do it. <laughs> he wondered whether the policeman would intervene. Georgie, Georgie, thank goodness you're safe. Where have you been? She said, hospital. Nina, <laughs> Nina. <laughs> oh, God, said Jess. <laughs> there was no Nina, said Max. It's just he was in this state. Seriously, Max? You wanted the NHS to change his nappy, said Margot. <laughs> you are unbelievable. You're unbelievable, Uncle Max, said a pink niece. God's sakes, Max, it was a job interview, said Jess. It was only an hour. What were you thinking? I took him on a bus, said Max numbly. I thought he'd like a bus. <laughs> Before our final story of the evening, some notices. Since you've been good enough not to erotically burn the place down, we'll be back here at the Phoenix on the 14th of March for Rack and Room, assuming the whole world hasn't been torched first. Submissions are closed. But you might like to try your hand at the Fiend the Liar's 10th birthday event in April, which is Truth and Lies. Deadline, March the 5th. Details of this, along with the rest of the year's themes and recordings and videos, are all on the Liar's website. And so, we come to the final story of the evening, which is the coat by Sarah Courthold, we read by Gloria Sanders. Sarah is a screenwriter and award-winning author of children's books. Her short stories have been published in various magazines and broadcast on Radio 4. She has frequent fantasies about becoming either a private detective or Gerald Dorrell. Neither of these have worked out thus far. Gloria's work includes audiobook narration for RNIB and collaborations with Cabinets of Curiosity. She has performed her devised one-woman show with Hide and Seek Theatre, The Clock at Brighton Fringe, The Pleasant Sissington, and the Art Scene Festival in Ghent. Gloria! By Sarah Courtauld. 
Last year, I chose a pottery class, and Max spent most of the night outside smoking. This year, it was his turn to choose our secret Valentine's destination. Now, we were in an Uber, and I was blindfolded, gulping Prosecco from the bottle, getting it down my neck at every speed bump. <laughs> Where are you taking me? I asked, but secretly I already knew. I'd been dropping hints about the Matthew Bourne thing at Sadler's Wells for months, and the run ended in four days. I couldn't wait. It was so sweet of him. Ballet wasn't really his thing, but he knew how much I loved it. He really pulled out all the stops this year, our tenth Valentine's. He'd even bought me a dress. <laughs> oh, I tried it on in the bathroom and I had to laugh <laughs> silently, my hand over my mouth. Um, yeah, it wasn't so much a dress as more a collection of bright red knots. The whole look with Euro trash prostitute meets upscale fishing net. <laughs> and I was the gigantic tuna. <laughs> Caught in it, bits of me bulging out in unexpected places. <laughs> but he put in such an effort. So I shouted to him that I loved it. And then I spanked myself up. <laughs> slapped on some makeup. Added a for a bit of basic decency and looking like a librarian with a midlife crisis <laughs> ran downstairs to find him by the door whistling adjusting his cuffs in a tux ready he said smiling where are you taking me Shh, it's a surprise when he led me out of the taxi, through the revolving door, and released me from my blindfold, we weren't in Sadler's Wells. We were in the lobby of an executive block of flats, all green marble and overhead lighting. My high heels clopped as I followed Max over to a lift. <laughs> okay, I'm lost. I know. Then we were zooming upwards. I looked at our reflections in the mirror, me in my oversized woolly coat, hiding the fishing net underneath. Max, with the corners of his mouth turned up, his winning Scrabble smile. The lift pinged and we got out. Max walked to the door of flat 11. Ready? <laughs> I don't know. What, what am I supposed to be ready for? He knocked, and the door swung open. I wasn't sure what I expected on the other side, but it definitely wasn't a beaming woman with cascading blonde hair and gym arms. Welcome, she said. I'm Sigrid. Please make yourselves very much at home. Hmm. She handed us a glass of bubbly, took our coats and purred us into the living room, where more glossy people were standing around. I pinched Max. Who are all these people? One of them turned to us. I'm Clark. 
this is Neil, she said, let me guess, you're newbies. I guess so. You'll love it, I can tell. <laughs> Did you get it yet? Max whispered. I definitely didn't get it yet. Glossy young professionals. Olives in bowls. General Milling. Tinkly Jazz in the background. I felt like I was at a works drinks for an upscale city law firm. I shot Max, what the fuck, looks as more people joined our circle. A redhead and her tall, serious looking friend. Now everyone was chatting about London property prices. Meanwhile, oh, it turned out that Neil worked in transport and was keen to give me all the crossrail gossip. <laughs> At the first opportunity, I dragged Max into a corner. Oh, what is happening? He smiled at me indulgently. Look around you, he murmured. So I looked. Little bones everywhere, full of Japanese snacks. Oh, great. <gasps> I don't know. No, not full of Japanese snacks. Full of condoms. <laughs> condoms. The penny dropped roughly at the same time as Neil's trousers. It's quite amazing, I discovered, how quickly some people can segue from a crossrail chat to group sex. <laughs> While I watched, Neil, Claire and the two girls all started undressing each other and moving towards the bedroom. As I stared, Claire came over to me laughing. <laughs> Neil's German, she said. He's very comfortable and himself. He likes to get the party started. Um... Go on, join us. She took my hand and started stroking my palm with her finger. <laughs> that, that sounds really fun, I said, my Englishness reliably springing up from out of nowhere, ready to mask all my actual emotions. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, in a, in a bit. <laughs> then I shot Max into a vacant bedroom. <laughs> A sex party. Now she gets it. Valentine's Day. And you take me to a sex party. New things, you said you wanted to try. New things. Yeah, like making sushi. <laughs> or, I don't know, landscape photography. Not fucking random crossfail employees! <laughs> Max looks genuinely baffled and then hurt. I thought this would be an adventure. Wow. Our fun little secret. I sat down on the bed picked up a bottle of Divine Glow Aqua Lubricant off the bedside table and sighed. <laughs> Fine, let's go, said Max. Clearly it was a terrible idea. I'm sorry, I ruined everything. He kicked the wall. Please don't do that. Why not? 
doesn't matter that I thought it would be fun or how much the tickets cost. Let's go. Oh, not? I said very quietly. I looked at him. I tried to imagine how he'd planned the evening, how he sincerely <laughs> imagined me being delighted. Then I thought about the ride home, him glaring and silent, the evening ruined. What about? I go home, I said slowly, and you can have your night of freedom. He looked at me, trying to assess if this was a trick. <laughs> that's, ri that's ridiculous. Was it though? I, mean, I didn't. I didn't know if it was or not. What was one night? <laughs> I had a feeling that if he chose to stay, that would be the end of us. Maybe I was being melodramatic. You know, maybe it would be just fine. Ten years together, I said casually. I figure you're allowed one night off. Really sure you wouldn't mind. I shrugged. <laughs> of course, I bloody mind my mind there. <laughs> <clears throat> Why should it matter? I said. He emptied his hip flask. He nodded. A decision made. Well, at least let me call you a taxi. <laughs> no, no, I think I can call my own Uber. I said, seriously, no, 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 seriously, have fun. <laughs> he gave me a hug, a thank you hug, <laughs> and walked through the bedroom door and out into the fray. Oh, and by now, it was a fray. People were naked everywhere, <laughs> chatting, kissing or fucking, <laughs> against the walls, on sofas, on the bed. On my way out, I made an effort not to look for Max. In the hall, I asked Sigrid for my coat. But the night's hardly started. Yeah, it's not really my thing. One glance at my face told her not to argue. So I followed as she went to collect my coat from a cupboard in one of the bedrooms. A pretty eventful bedroom, as it turned out. <laughs> it was hard not to look. As Sigrid offered me coat after coat that wasn't mine, <laughs> I decided to focus on a particularly bland watercolour of Venetian canal boats while Sigrid uh, offered me a succession of uh, various coats. Purple, leather, uh, long, black, um, tartan, no, no, uh, no, sorry, no. As a foot or two away from us, people moaned and sighed and tangled and came. I had to admire her poise. It was an unusual working environment. <laughs> Whilst I waited, I couldn't help but notice the different configurations of the eight or it nine people on the bed. The way they pulsed and moved together. Eventually, Sigrid emptied the coat completely, the cupboard completely, and my coat was gone. There is a possibility, she said eventually, and I'm so sorry about this. Um, 
I may have left one or two coats yeah, on, on, on the bed um, <laughs> before putting them away. Uh, it's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> oh, I said, right. <laughs> so it may still be there. We looked at the bed. If it was still there, I wasn't really sure I'd want it back. <laughs> Apart from the fact that my wallet and my phone were in the pockets, I was stranded without it. I'm so sorry, she said. Just leave it to me. I will resolve this. While she did, I decided to try and find somewhere to wait when no one was having sex. This wasn't easy, but eventually I found my refuge, the balcony. Too cold for copulation, even for this lot. I thought it was empty, but when I stepped outside, I saw a girl leaning against the railings, smoking and shivering, mascara running down her face. Oh, hey, she sniffed. Sorry. Are you okay? He brought me here, but he doesn't want me, she said. <laughs> now he's in there, and no one wants me. I swapped her some tissues for a cigarette and a swig of champagne. <sighs> Valentine's Day. <laughs> the fucker. He's the fucker, she said. Why don't you have fun with someone else? I said after a while, but she shook her head. <laughs> Are you joking? You're crazy in any way, who? I don't know. Everyone here seems pretty friendly, I told her. Then I decided I wouldn't let the evening be completely wasted. My own Valentine's might be ruined, but that wasn't going to stop me from helping this young woman to find an orgasm, courtesy of some totally random strangers who might or might not work for Crossrail. So I took her to the bathroom to wash her face, and then we went in search of Clara and Neil. Clara wasn't hard to find. I bumped into her jumping out of a shower, having a little break as she told me giddily, and she was very happy to be introduced to Tana, the no longer crying girl. Always room for a long more, she said cheerfully, and Tana's whole face lit up. So, that was my good deed for the night. I felt proud, like a brownie. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered what the badge would look like if you could get one for Pimpin. <laughs> My coat was lost. My wallet was in my coat. The cigarette hadn't reappeared. What was I going to do? Spend all night on the balcony freezing my arse off and thinking about Max. Come on, said Claire. No, I really can't, I told her. I mean, if someone gets me something really cold and fizzy and delicious to down very fast. That request, as it turned out, was extremely easy to fulfil. Uh, well. In terms of new skills, 
The nights turned out to be much more educational than the pottery class. <laughs> yeah, there was the pleasing anonymity, the surprising configurations, the um, unexpected tangles, the sheer animal warmth. I decided I liked group activities. I had thought about joining a choir, a netball team, but this was better. For one thing, I was crap at netball. And the people I met were just much friendlier than your average Londoner. Uh, Max, unfortunately, wasn't so lucky. I thought I was hallucinating when I heard his voice. I'd gone for a shower and was just drying my hair. It could have been three in the morning, it could have been six. What are you doing here? He gaped at me, looking like he'd just got back from the First World War. <laughs> Max! Where have you been? He shook his head. Uh, I just, I, 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 I couldn't. I, I locked myself in one of the bathrooms, he said. Uh, I, can't, I can't do this. I'm sorry, I feel awful. Let's go. He reached out and gripped my hands. It was lucky, I thought, that I'd had that shower. <laughs> maybe, I said, maybe, it's just, I've met all these really nice people, why don't I just, you know, put them in a taxi. <laughs> each other for a while longer. And singletons are welcome to gaze at me <laughs> or any of the other liars sticking around. I won't be offended. But now, please, erupt into crazed applause for our lovely actors and our best mates, Orphus. Good night! <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>